let's just um, <clears throat> acknowledge the occasional noises that might be that might be coming. Um, <laughs> I mean, this is the the downside of working from home, right? Yes. So, yes. So your dad is fixing the sink, and yep. um, yeah. And I mean, today. I mean, I, I I told my parents that I'm recording, so hopefully there are not too many noises. But both my parents um, have been listening to National Day songs all morning. Oh dear! So uh, I'm I'm assuming that we are not going to hear that. But you know, if you hear any noises on the off chance, <laughs> yes, exactly. All right. Yeah. Oh, good level. Yeah. So I mean, you know, it's it's National Day, and I'm trying my best to avoid all the National Day f- things going on. Um, yeah. I think the the fighter jets have already done their fly past, so mercifully we won't be hearing. I think so. People have been posting photos of those, so is my assumption so? is it's over and done with. Thank because heavens. There is uh, still there is still the parade later on. I think I'm not sure. Right. Oh, because, is that right? Yeah, and I mean, there's still a whole, you know, there's a whole like mobile columns thing going on. Oh, that's already happened on my side. So they oh, that's already like, happened. State, okay, I, uh, I haven't. A couple been, hours ago, I have not been keeping track. Uh, I do. Well, know I that, mean, it's it 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 blocked up a whole bunch of traffic. So, so. <laughs> I do know that um, fireworks are going off at eight twenty, but we won't be <laughs> we won't be doing that for that long. No, I don't think uh, we'll be talking for six hours nonstop. Oh yeah, actually, it has it has gone past um, where I am as well. Yeah, it was I, done I mean, at I, I care very little for any of that. So yeah, same. <laughs> also, so there there was this um, there was this uh, infographic that was going around from Channel News Asia with um, the mobile column route map. So there were five different mobile columns, and then they were visiting basically all the all the towns, right? Yes. And um what I, I mentioned this because uh it's actually bothering me a little bit. The the CNA article or the CNA infographic used five col- five colors to denote the, the root map, okay? So they used the same colors as what's available on the MRT map, right? The train oh. the train map. So they used green, red, yellow, blue and purple. But why I bring this up is because the mobile column map doesn't correspond exactly to to the train lines. Ha. Okay. So for example, right, there is a there was a mobile column that went from Katip to Simbawang. Right? right? right. And on the way That's it passed through yeah, it passed through Yishun, Admiralty, Marceling, Woodlands. So those are literally all stations on the north-south line, which is red. Mm-hmm. And on this map, it's red. Okay, great. Okay. But um, in the... Okay, so here's, here's the thing. Because the north-south line goes all the way from the top to the bottom, right? Yes, of, of, north-south. Of Singapore. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so on um, for the southern mobile column, the southern mobile column starts at uh, Clementi um, and ends at Yochukang. And, oh. Yeah. And so now we have a problem because what color do you use for that? 
Right. Yeah, I mean, Clementi is on the east-west line, which is green, right? We could use green, but green has already been taken. Uh, it's for the one that runs from Simei to Siglap. <laughs> okay. And again, um, Simei is a station. Siglap is not. But they're both on the... You know, they would they both run along the east-west line. So the 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 one that is in green, it goes from Simei to Changi, to Bedok, to Kembangan, to Paya Lebar, right? Changi is not on the east-west line, but it doesn't matter. The others are, right? And then it goes to Haokang, which is not on the east-west you line. You see, this is why we have the downtown line. They should have used downtown line colours. <laughs> they do use the downtown line colours, which I'll get oh, to that gosh. in a second. Oh, yeah. gosh. And then it goes to Haokang and Sarangun, which are on not on the east-west line. And then to Geelang. Uh, really not on the east-west line, but I guess you could substitute like that for Aljunit. Then Marine Parade and Sigla. Okay, so right. th- there is like a slight offense already because like if you're looking at this infographic, <laughs> right, and you live in Haokang or Sarangun, you will automatically look for purple. Right, yes. But they are on the green line. And now, if you live in Clementi, right... Um, well, there are, there are two different design factors at play. One is color, the other is location. So yes. if you are in Clementi, you're not going to look at the east, the green line, because that's clearly in the east. But you'll be like, well, well, what am I looking for then? Because <laughs> the two options in the west are blue, which is downtown line, which is actually quite, like it goes basically all over the place. And um, the yellow line, which is the circle line, which also goes all over the place. Like, it's not geographically mm-hmm. constrained, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so the the line that goes from Clementi to Yochukang is yellow. And okay. so, oh. yeah. Mm. Okay, so okay. we have this problem because actually, why am I just... Let me let me send you this image actually. So <laughs> I want to see this image, yeah. Yeah. Um I mean this this sounds like a, you know, a a, a math problem. I mean, it's it's, it, it, you, it's you almost reminiscent of the of... Right, you know the the, the 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 what is it called the three color problem or the four, five... the four color theorem. The four, four color <laughs> theorem, that's right. Sorry. The four color theorem. Yeah. Oh, how wonderful! Um, Look at this. It's the wrong shade of red for one. It's this is more. It's a bit brown, darker than reddish brown. Yeah, yeah, um, but yeah. So the thing is, these these um, stations, right? Clementi, Queenstown, Bukit Merah, Tanjong Paga, Kalang, literally the first five stops on this mobile column, they are on the east-west line, not on the circle line. And then you go up to Bendemir, which is on the downtown line, blue. Potong Pasir, which is on the northeast line, <laughs> purple. Topayo, which is on the north-south line, which is red. Bishan, which is literally... Okay, I mean... the. I think Bishan is literally the only stop on this mobile column that is actually on the... That's actually on the circle line. I mean, clearly what this screams is that, you know, okay, it says... Infographic is made by this guy called Kenneth Choi. Whoever uh-huh. Kenneth Choi is, he had to make an executive decision at some point. Yes, uh, exactly. <laughs> or, I mean, or he committed to a certain color scheme and is like, you know what, I've got to make this work. And... Right. 
Right. So the thing is, my my personal preference, right, would have been not to use any colors reminiscent of reminiscent of the MRT map. Right. Um, right. Of course, given that red, I mean, given that it's literally red, blue, yellow, green, purple, it's kind of hard not to. But it's like, you know, choose different shades. Well, actually, I mean, this is an interesting thing. And I, I, I would like to look into this. Uh, I'm, I'm starting to open Photoshop right now because uh-huh. I'm curious. But th- this is the thing that we, we encounter in the scientific literature, um, mm-hmm. which is, you know, making uh, graphics uh, friendly towards colorblind people. Right. Okay. And I, I do wonder if this palette is a colorblind friendly palette. That, uh, could be, that could be true, yeah. I mean, I'll look into this. Uh, I may not have an answer before the end of this this this, this show, mm-hmm. but you know, uh, uh, it will be interesting to look at because you know this is one of the things that we we do, uh, you know, think about as a means of improving accessibility in science. Right. And in fact, there is a uh, R palette. So I've I've been I'm primarily coding R. Uh, mm-hmm. Let me find R Color Brewer. So this is a website that basically allows you to generate palettes depending on very specific uh, requirements. So I'm going to send you the link mm-hmm. uh, over the Zoom chat. Uh, here you go. And so it okay. allows you to generate palettes um, that sh- you know show different uh, uh, data types. So for example, the, the default is sequential, so where you know you have a gradient. Now these are ah. relatively agnostic to color blindness because you're going right. from dark to pale, right? So if I print right. it, and you know, the other thing is, of course, if I print this grayscale, uh, mm-hmm. whether or not it will show up uh, as a difference right. or whether it just blend into a mess. And then right. you can have, okay, how many data classes do I have? Three to 12? Uh, okay. If I have diverging data sets, how do I, uh, you know, what color palette do I use to increase contrast mm-hmm. uh, between my categories? Right, right, and then I can choose colorblind safe palettes, print friendly palettes, photocopy safe palettes as well. So you know, it, right. it shows that people have been thinking about this to some extent, mm-hmm. uh, and and it does represent an, an interesting challenge as well with with graphic design, uh, right. which is when 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 it comes down to it, you know, as a scientist, you are playing, you're wearing an incredible number of hats. Yes, uh, not. All of us have enough money to hire a dedicated graphic designer. So very often it falls upon you know us to become our own graphic designers to design right. our own figures to make them intelligible. And the color palette is a big part of this. Right. Okay. I I have been looking at this. So it seems that there is. So okay. Let me kind of describe what's going on here because I'm seeing this for the first time. Um, it's pretty cool, right? It is cool. It is cool. So. What Color Brewer has is basically what I'm looking at, which I assume is some kind of sample, right? Is um, yeah, a it's, map a, of, it's a test data set. Yeah, what what looks like you know all the counties of the U.S. and then well, this is like have, Florida and a bit of South Carolina. Yeah, yeah, it's like the yeah. southeast of the U.S. So yeah. and then it says okay, number of data classes, and then you can choose like three all the way up to like nine. Um, so I'm choosing five because that's what we have. And then there's the question of nature of your data. Is it sequential, diverging, or qualitative? So sequential is you are choosing like one, two, three, four, five, right? And the your buckets of data, they all have some kind of relation. Um, diverging. It's continuous in a sense. Yeah, or it's continuous. Not it's uh, not really continuous. I mean, it, it's discrete, but you know, it's, it's it flows from one to the other. There, there's a yeah. gradient. It's it's discrete, but they all exist on the same scale. 
Then diverging looks like there are two scales. Um, yeah, I mean, it's it's also discrete. They also kind of exist on the same scale, but you can imagine that one is positive and one is negative, right? So instead of like the sequential one, like um, I'm looking at the you know the kind of uh, how would this look? Okay, so for example, I'm looking at the one that's green that goes from green to like a very 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 pale white, and Effectively, mm-hmm. there are different shades of green. So the more yeah. green, the higher... More intense. The more intense, yeah. The higher the, higher higher the, the qualitative the, value. Yeah. Um, I, I guess that's what it would be. So diverging, you still have five values, but now the pale one is in the middle. And then you have, for, for the middle value, you have a pale white or an off-white. Mm-hmm. And then you go pale green, dark green, pale brown dark brown right so it's kind and, of and like, the point is to increase contrast between the categories yes, correct and then the third one is qualitative so this is what we would be um what the closest thing to you know what we're looking at um yep. is and um it actually so it doesn't, doesn't take five categories eh? it doesn't it does not take five categories you can only choose mm. three or four yep. so um the options are basically you're choosing a color scheme where any pair of colors contrasts as much as possible yeah right and um and which which would be an interesting you know uh graph theory problem i mean this is a graph theory problem Mm -hmm. uh and also i've chosen only show colorblind safe and that actually pulls the number the available number down quite a bit yeah yeah. So there are not that many options. Yep. Um Yeah. But I think If you if you take off the mm-hmm. colorblind safe option, you see a, a quite a, a lot more for five uh five yeah. data classes. A lot of them are pastel colors which I despise. Yes. Uh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'm not so. a fan not really a fan of the pastel colors. <laughs> so but you know, I mean this is a very interesting uh, I mean, I guess from a mathematical standpoint, it would be very interesting as well. How would you uh, compute your color space such mm-hmm. that it meets, you know, the requirement of being colorblind friendly, so it, you know, doesn't fall within that confusion zone of of, of colors that could be confused by people with different types of colorblindness, yeah. but also in a way that maximizes contrast. So you want to find things on opposite ends of the color yeah. wheel as well. I mean, I think you know if there was an executive decision made at some point to say you must use the five colors of the, you know, of the MRT map, right? Then this is not too bad just because your circle line and downtown line, they are not, they are not geographically constrained, like I said, right? We don't associate them with north, south, east, or west. Yeah. And, um, I mean, purple is clearly northeast. And so, for example, I live in Tampanese, and Tampanese is on the purple mobile column. <laughs> Even though Tampanese, the station, is on the green line and on the blue line, not on the purple line. But I think this is also a quirk of... I, okay, so I think here's, here's another thing, right? Which, you know, going back to like maps and mental models and things like that. If you live somewhere, you're aware of where it is on a... On a model map like a subway map right like a train map 
mm-hmm. and you're also aware of where it is geographically because right. you're going to use all available you know modes of transport to get to and from where you live right um but if you don't live in a particular place then you're you're and and you don't drive right then your kind of conception of where a place is is determined almost exclusively by how you get there which right no i i, I mean this is very interesting and yeah. because you know I guess the only other place where I have a, a strong sense of the, uh, mm-hmm. the, the, you know, the, the, the public infrastructure would be New York City. Yes. Where, you know, you've lived for a while and I spent a, a, about a month living there as well, mm-hmm. plus plus, right? Yeah. And, and, you know, yes, you, you do get certain outer lying areas having a distinct sort of identity because of the types of trains that go there. Oh, so, yeah. for example, yeah. uh, Williamsburg, right, and the L train. Mm-hmm. Yes. For example. Um, yeah. And then for us, you know, in Singapore, we have the Purple Line or the Northeast Line the and northeast the Northeast. Line the, yes. Right. And then when uh, you get to the to, to downtown, the heart, mm-hmm. things get become very confused because that's where the lines intersect. They all cross, yeah. Right. And yeah. it's like downtown Manhattan, where you know, you know, you have to wonder, okay, Columbus Circle, am I on the on the red on the red line or am I on you know the orange or you know where? Good heavens, I've gotten Nobody lost so many seems. times near Columbus Circle. Nobody Sorry. refers to the the subway lines. Yes, I know. By the colors. one or the two or the, the M or the, the L. Or, the, could... the, red, the red line is the one, two, three. It's one, two, three, right? Yes. Yeah. The, the orange line is a BDFM. Although, yes. since I've lived there, I believe some of those have changed because new lines have opened, old lines have closed, things like that. Right. Yeah. 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 So, I think here's... So, I mean... I, yeah, I, I mentioned this because, right... Um, the thing is, I think if you ask anybody in Singapore, right, where, like, which which direction is Tampines, they would tell you it's in the east, right? But um, if you look at a map and you just look at the east, right, you actually have to kind of reorient yourself a little bit because Tampines is actually slightly northeast, Yes. So Very as uh, actually. Yeah. So as somebody who lives in Tampines, right, I have no problem with being thought of as northeast, but I don't think that is what most people how most people conceive of it. And I think here's the other thing, right, which is that um like for example, if you look at say Queenstown on the map, right? Queenstown, I think most people think ah it's west or west central. <laughs> But right. it's actually really, really southwest. Yes. Yeah, it's yeah. like really far south and not that west, actually. And I mean, it the- is fascinating how we, you know, break apart and categorize. I, and, you know, to what extent is this a function of structures we create? Yeah. And to what extent is this a product of, you know, natural geography? Right, and, right. Uh, <laughs> I mean... I, I mean I, I think in Singapore, at least, right, part of this is complicated by the fact that um, when we think of what we think of as a city centre is actually very south because yes. the the harbour is, is is all the way at the bottom of the map. Right. And we're right. not square, so that also yeah. complicates things somewhat. Correct. <laughs> and then the other thing is that the geographical centre of Singapore mm-hmm. is reservoir. Nature reserve. Is a nature reserve, yeah. Mm. 
So yeah. you don't really think of, when you think of, I'm going to the central area, you're actually going south. Yeah. Pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so, you know, to segue this into a topic that's close and dear to my heart. Okay. Right? How do birds that migrate long distances uh -huh. uh, memorize places? Or how do they know places? Yeah. Yep. Right. And, 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 you know, this becomes even more complicated when you think about birds that are migrating for the first time. Mm -hmm. So first year birds fresh out of the nest. Now, not, uh, uh, in fact, most migrating birds, as far as I'm aware, um, do not follow their parents. Some birds do. So things like cranes, Interesting. they're okay. known to, uh, so, so, uh, uh, there are several crane species that breed in the far northern hemisphere, and uh, especially some species like the demoiselle cranes or the blue cranes, they have to cross the Himalayas uh, to get from their breeding grounds to the wintering grounds in India and I think parts of uh, the Middle East. And right. to do that, they have to follow their parents because otherwise okay. they won't know the route, right? So uh, cranes that are bred in captivity do not know how to migrate because, you know, they don't have an example to follow. Interesting. Okay. Right. So, but that's a, that's a, that's a fairly rare case, a fairly rare situation. I think there was a, uh, uh, you know, several, there have been several documentaries made about how, you know, some biologists have used microlites to teach birds how to migrate, etc., etc. Okay. Um, but by and large, most of the migratory birds we see in nature, they, this knowledge is innate. Right. Well, mm -hmm. uh, once the breeding I mean, cycle is over, yeah. the babies have fledged. The parents will leave for migration, and then the babies are just left. You know, the first year birds are left to figure out how to get to the winter grounds on their own. Right. Okay. Right. So, so, so you know, in in a mm -hmm. sense, for them, they're tabula rasas in their first year, <laughs> and they okay. have to figure out how to get from point A to point B somehow. Okay. Um, but then, you know, in subsequent years, we do see some level of memory coming into play because right. we know this from uh, bird recapture data where we recapture the same bird in the same wintering site year on okay. year okay so the site there is there's a level of site fidelity going on and you know this this comes with you know some level of spatial awareness and and spatial memory okay Right, so I mean, this is a it's a it's a it's a, a bit of a stretch of a segue, but it does mm -hmm. come down to the same issue of how do we recognize landmarks and how do we recognize yeah. the space we we occupy. I mean, uh, so now okay, I'm I'm curious about this. Like, do do we know the mechanism by which the birds actually perform well, this, this navigation? Very, there are, I think I may have discussed this partially to some extent in prior okay. episodes, but there are right, uh, yeah. several mechanisms we know that birds use for orientation. Uh, okay. Some mechanisms are very strong in some birds, some mechanisms are stronger in other birds. So mm -hmm. by and large for, for, let's say, let's just take the typical migrant. So you get a lot right. of birds that you know, breed in the northern hemisphere, they, they migrate long distances down mm -hmm. to the southern hemisphere. Now, one of the core... Um, uh, ways of orienteering is actually the stars. Uh, we we know this. Uh -huh. I think I mentioned this a long time ago. Uh, use uh, this was an experiment done in Germany uh, uh, using this device called the Emlen funnel. It's a very okay. simple device. It's a strip of paper, right? Mm -hmm. That's shaped into a cone. Okay, mm -hmm. the bird is placed in the middle of this cone and on the on the on the floor where, where you know the the bird's feet touch the ground. Mm -hmm. It's a pad, literally okay. like you know, for it's it's an ink pad. Right, and okay. they put this Emlen funnel in a planetarium, and they project uh -huh. the stars onto the ceiling. Now, All right. The bird, 
the birds recognize the star patterns and they will jump in a particular direction. And looking at the density of footprints on the piece of paper, you will be able to determine, okay, this is the direction the bird is, is very likely moving in. Then what they did was they right. rotated the star pattern and they uh -huh. found that the bird would rotate its movement direction accordingly as well. It's, it's a super elegant experiment. It's really That's beautiful. Very, yeah, that is very... Um, right. I, I mean, I want to say like it's really amusing, but I think... To give it a lot more credit, it's a lot more than amusing. That's very, it's very well elegant. designed. Yeah. And it's not even a recent experiment. This experiment was yeah. done, you know, I think in the... I, I need to pull up the paper. The paper is beautiful. And they, they okay. hand-drew the diagrams of the bird footprints <laughs> as well. It was... It's it's quite something. Um, um, okay. So, 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 so that's one mechanism. Birds uh, very likely have this innate ability to interpret the stars. Mm -hmm. Right. That that is, you know, it's mind blowing. Where this comes from, how this is imprinted, we don't know. Right. But there right. are other mechanisms as well. So I mean the stars can serve as a general sort of, you know, way of orienteering, but more specifically, right, how do birds recognize north, south, east, west? Uh, mm -hmm. And this was uh, discovered also, you know, a while back, but we're only really starting to to dig into the, the, the deeper implications of this. Now uh what we found is that migrating birds tend to uh, observe, be particularly active uh, in, uh, during sunrise and sunset. And that's important because that already okay. gives you east-west. Right, I see. Right, yeah. And then from there, they can probably use a combination of east-west and the stars to orient north-south. Makes sense, yeah. Okay. Right. The other thing that we know that some birds have we don't know if this applies to all birds but we have this has been studied i think especially well for birds like pigeons because you know, they're common use as model species mm -hmm. is uh magnetoreception <laughs> so we know that birds That's a really can, interesting name right but we know that birds at least you know some birds can see magnetic fields um interesting and do, this was do we say see or is it like sight well, or perception this is a good question. Uh, I think the current evidence suggests that this 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 perception, uh, the perceptual apparatus is located within the optical uh, system of the birds. Oh, so right. seeing, I think, is a, is an appropriate uh, uh, a way of describing it. I think this was, I might be wrong, but I think how this was discovered was they basically put a bunch of homing pigeons in a Faraday cage. Okay, no, wait, wait, wait. <laughs> it's 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 more it's it's even even better than that. Um, okay. okay, we know homing pigeons, right? You, you, know, you take mm, them yeah. far away and you release them and they fly home. Right, now, right. Um, people realize that in a part of New Jersey, uh -huh. homing pigeons were getting lost. They like, <laughs> couldn't find their way home and they would, they would circle around this hill and just you know, keep going Worst around. Worst place to be stuck. Circles. I mean, Sorry. And, and, uh, fine, I mean you know, New just... Jersey, it's, it's just <laughs> New Jersey. I, I'm going to be extremely impolite here. It is not a pleasant place to be in. Nope. Well, Newark in particular. Mm -hmm, but mm -hmm. anyway, <laughs> um, so so basically, they just they they were they were they were puzzled. You know, why are pigeons getting lost in New Jersey? Is it what characteristic of New Jersey, aside from New Jersey being New Jersey, uh -huh. is causing this? And they realize that this particular area that causes confusion for homing pigeons is basically rich in magnetite. <laughs> and so okay. this led to the hypothesis that, huh, maybe the you know the anomalous magnetic field of this region is 
causing birds to have trouble orienting themselves. Right, right. And so ultimately they put a pigeon in the Faraday cage, which, you know, nullifies the magnetic field and they realize that the pigeon got completely bamboozled. It could not determine orientation. Interesting. Okay. And so this leads to this idea that, oh, okay, th- mm-hmm. that there is something going on that allows birds to perceive the Earth's magnetic right. field. And that, you know, plays a role as well in in uh, orienteering. So um, there have been some experiments done looking at uh, quantum superposition within opsin. Mo- opsin molecules are the molecules in the eye that, you know, uh, respond mm-hmm. to light, light okay. signals. Um, and there is some evidence suggesting that there is a quantum effect of light on... Um, uh, of the magnetic field on on the uh, conformation of these molecules, it's 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 very hypothetical at the moment. It's 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 you know equal parts experimental, equal parts speculation. I feel it's my personal mm-hmm. sense, not being right. an expert in this field to begin with. But right. um, I think the current consensus amongst bird biologists is that what what the Earth's magnetic field does is it creates a dark and a light field. So in your vision, right, we see. Uh, we, we know we, we don't observe any kind of perceptual dimming of the edges of our vision, but in the birds, that's what we think happens. It's kind of like a vignetting effect. Interesting. Okay. That, that, uh, that, and uh, bearing in mind that, you know, comparing our vision to, to bird vision is not an easy thing to do because birds not only can see, now we know magnetic fields, they can see ultraviolet, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, so, so we are comparing a completely unusual perceptual system to to our perceptual system right yeah right i mean i this is this is all new to me because i have very little knowledge of anything um relating to animal biology pretty much um but this actually okay so in the spirit of working from home and general covid hijinks um i have been watching a lot of dog and cat videos oh no (laughs) (laughs) yeah a lot of them so um there was one that was making the news recently not i mean i say making the news it's not making the news it's making the social media rounds basically where um there was a dog in thailand that got lost so this is an owner who lets her dogs roam free when she's at work um, and this one dog that was pretty young, less than a year old, um, got lost. And um, the dog managed to trace its way to the vet. Oh, bloody hell. <laughs> yeah. So the dog is like, okay, I don't know where I am and I don't know how to get home. But for some reason, um, I can figure out the way to the vet. So the dog made its way to the vet and then pawed at the door for about, you know, and then, I mean, well, he wasn't pawing at the door for five minutes, but he, he was, the security camera shows that the dog was there for about five minutes before the vet nurses let him in. Uh, and I mean, <laughs> the dog is lucky in a lot of ways that um, the, the vet nurses not only let him in, but they recognized him as a dog that they've treated in the past. So they right. track down the owner and so on. Um, but yeah, so it's one of those things that's like, that to my mind, it's like, how do you, how is it that you don't know the way home, but you know the way to the vet? And, but obviously, and this in itself is, very, I'm, I'm sorry to cut in, yeah. but this is in itself is very interesting. This is related to a paper that just came out as well. That is I discussed it? Okay. In, in the lab meeting recently. Well, um, okay. 
there are two two angles I'm going to take, and this this might require extremely long segues. <laughs> okay. But, uh, we talked about vision, right? Yep. And dogs have comparatively poor vision. Yeah. Uh, I say this because um, now it's a common misconception that dogs see the world in black and white. That's not necessarily true. Mm-hmm. Now, see okay, it in yellow and to blue understand, or something uh, there blue and red. So it's a blue. It's a spectrum okay. between blue okay. and red. So so we have three color perceiving cones in our eyes, right? Okay. RGB, red, right. blue, and green. Okay. Right. Now, uh, this these three cones are not, in a sense, independently evolved. Mm-hmm. Um, Many uh, so humans and primates, mm-hmm. we know we all trace our ancestry evolutionarily back to right. some kind of um, mammal that lived underground. And right, many okay. of the, and, and these mammals, you know, living underground, they would have lost their visual acuity. Um, right. So living underground, you don't need to see in three colors. You just need to see in right. two colors, right? Which are? Shade and hue, uh, blue and ah. red. Right. right. So right, this, right. I mean, and, and when when you have you know two points on the spectrum, basically you're just looking at gradients, which yes, is why people okay. make this 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 you know uh, analogy to dogs seeing in black and white because that's effectively right. what you have. Right. right Even right. though they, they 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 perceive blue light and they perceive red light, effectively when you synthesize it into a, into a spectrum, it's basically just from one to the one point to the other. Right. Right. And at some point in our evolutionary history. Mm-hmm. Um, one of our mammalian ancestors had a duplication event in the blue mm-hmm. cone, and this okay. blue cone began. This this duplicate blue cone diverged and began to become green. green sensitive. Yes. This, okay. This is interesting because um, when I was in film school, right, when I was doing, you know, in our camera class, our professor, you know, talked about film and how like physical film works, and you know because. Color film, right? Literally has three layers of, um, of uh, photo sensitive material, mm-hmm. right? And they are sensitive to red, green, blue, right? Uh, yeah. And then of course, when you do photo processing, right? There is a whole other, there is a whole other like science that that goes on behind, like what color you, um, you you shine through the slide in order to produce the, the the shade. That you want, like that's what film colorists are doing, right? They are manipulating. I think there was a very good Vox video about this. Or was it Vox? I can't remember. Possibly, <clears throat> sorry. Possibly, yeah. Yeah. So, film colorists, what they are doing when they're working on film, right? Um, they're also called the color timer. Um, hmm. Again, for historical reasons, because you are you are exposing the film, right? Um, and the color timer is exposing it in such a way that it produces the shade that the director wants. So. Um, this is like a very vague memory from one undergraduate lesson, right? Okay. And you know how those go. Like I'm probably like repeating a lot of things wrong, but our professor actually like showed us like, okay, this is what happens when you remove red. This is what happens when you remove green. Mm -hmm. This is what happens when you remove blue. And this is what it looks like with all three in. And the observation that he made was that humans are much less sensitive to the presence of blue in a film image and then oh. we are to red and green you can take out the blue and many people will barely notice the difference but if you take out red and green it looks like a filter has been put over the film oh that is fascinating okay yeah. okay yeah I don't know what the biological explanation for that is though but that, that hmm. right huh okay okay that's yeah so, so yeah 
back back to my point about mm-hmm. dog vision. So because dogs only have red and blue cones, mm-hmm. I'm 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 as far as I'm aware this is correct, but I might I, I, you know if if I'm wrong I'll update this in a in a subsequent episode. <laughs> so their color vision is significantly less powerful compared to us humans who can uh-huh. see using a three color spectrum. Right. <clears throat> now, what about birds? And I did mention this in passing just now. Birds can see ultraviolet, right? Yeah. But th- th- there is another interesting point. So, okay, um, if, if you, you, you can, in a sense, uh, represent our color vision as a triangle. Yeah. Red, blue, green in each vertex. Yeah. And you it's can... It's a classic potentially... design school, art school, color That's theory. Right. So yeah. you can... You can, you can pick any color from any point on this triangle. But mm-hmm. the triangle is actually not, it's, it's an artificial construct, right? right? Because if you look at it from an electromagnetic perspective, you have red on one end, the, mm-hmm. the, the, the long wavelengths, mm-hmm. and blue on the other end, the short wavelengths. Am I getting this right? right? Yes. Yes, yes, you are. Okay. Which now, we also learned in camera one. <laughs> that, that, that's right. Yeah. So, so this means any color from red to blue... Mm-hmm. Right, is a natural color. It's what we call a spectral color. Yes. What yep. about purple? You ex- <laughs> um, is a is good purple point. a so, spectral color? That is a good point. Um, that is I mean, not spoiler, obvious it's to not. me. Yeah, it's not a not spectral obvious. color. So yeah. purple is what we call a non-spectral color because it requires a combination of two separate wavelengths of light to form this particular right. color. Interesting. Okay, wow. so we know okay. that we can perceive purple. Right. Okay, what about birds? Can they see purple? And never mind purple, can they see non-spectral colors within their tetrahedral color uh, uh, color space, right? Because ultraviolet forms Uh a a, a third, a A, fourth dimension. A fourth, yeah. Well, a third, yeah. Okay, another dimension that means that their color space is not a flat triangle, but it is a tetrahedron. Right. So it's not like you wouldn't go like triangle square, you go triangle tetrahedron. Yes, exactly. Interesting. Okay. So, right, uh, you have certain parts of the triangle that are spectral, but Uh certain parts of the triangle are non-spectral. Specifically, within the visible frame, you have the line between red and blue as Mm non-spectral, but you also have the line between ultraviolet and red, ultraviolet and green. Interesting. Right. Ultraviolet and blue. This is direct spectral line because it's just a change in wavelength. That's spectral. But ultra-red, ultra-yellow, ultra-green. These are non-spectral right. colors. Right. And right. so this brings me to this, this, this really cool paper by uh, Mary Caswell Stoddard, who is a uh, professor of biology, I believe, at Stanford. Okay. Um, she's, a, she's a brilliant scientist. She's one of my scientific heroes. <clears throat> she's done an incredible amount of work uh, on bird colors and bird eggs over the last, you know, goodness knows how many years, and she's amazing. Um, <clears throat> so... She wanted to know if hummingbirds can dis- can can perceive non-spectral colors. Okay. Right. So what do you do? You train the hummingbirds to associate certain colors with food. <laughs> Simple, right? Okay. Like humans, birds are very food motivated. So uh-huh. she she had this really cool setup where <clears throat> um, she would she would uh, 
generate these non-spectral colors and 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 you know have a control and see whether or not hummingbirds were able to associate these non-spectral colors with food. And okay. the, the long story short is that yes, hummingbirds can perceive non-spectral colors. Right. And it was a really cool, really elegant experiment. Um, you know, there are obviously you know uh, 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 it's it's not a complete picture, right? There are you know ways of critiquing the paper, but by and large, it it, it provides a really elegant way of investigating uh, this question. Interesting. And yet, you know, custom-made lights to, to, to be able to, to generate these colors, you know, to make right. sure that there's no contamination from, from, right. from surrounding uh, light frequencies as well. Right. Okay, I just thought of something totally random, but remind me, um, Hotel 81 and ultraviolet oh. light. Okay. Oh, dear you can, God. You, okay. Can, you can go back. Okay. <clears throat> so, so, so um, this is, I mean, this is, it's a long ass segue from this idea that dogs uh-huh. have poor vision. Yep. Now, the second segue I wanted to talk about that's related to this issue of you know the dog finding its way to the vet is yep. another part of bird perception that uh, we used to discount and now we're starting to realize might actually be very important. Okay. It's olfaction. Yeah. Smell. Yeah. We know dogs have an excellent sense of smell. Yes. <clears throat> Sorry. We're now talking, even there was a news article about dogs being used to detect COVID. Yes. Um, I think I mentioned in a very early episode about how bees are being trained to detect bombs. Okay. Uh, in Germany, I believe. Um, okay. But so, so we know dogs have an excellent sense of smell and this, you know, the olfactory component serves as a means of spatial recognition and spatial right, awareness. Yep. Yeah. So there is every likelihood that the dog would have used olfactory cues as part of its way of finding, you know, uh, the, the route back to the vet. Yeah. Right. It would have known, made it some kind of mental map of the olfactory space or the right. olfactory relationship between the space and, and, you know, and, and its mental map in a sense. Right, right. Right. Now, for years and years and years, we thought, you know, ah, birds can't smell that well. They have small noses, small olfactory bulbs, so they're probably not very good at smelling. Okay. That's until we got to albatrosses. <laughs> okay. And seabirds. Uh, how on earth is an albatross, which spends most of its life out in the open sea without having to, la- uh, you know, sometimes landing on the water, but how does it navigate the open sea? Right. When there are not and a lot we... of visual cues for, well, for navigation. It's the sea, yeah. right? Yeah. <laughs> it's water yeah. as far as the eye can see. Yeah. Well, we now know this is from experiments using uh, very smelly, you know, fish oil and chum. Oh my god! Okay. That these birds are able to use the smell of rotting fish mm-hmm. to navigate their way towards prey. Right. Okay. Um, uh, this is a very complex field that I don't understand uh, personally myself, but I've heard okay. talks about this and I've absorbed some component of this. But basically, you know, they combine a search algorithm a search mm-hmm. pattern with olfactory cues so they can know, okay, the wind is coming from this direction. Uh, there is, you know, and, and there is a, a smell cue coming from that direction. So I should mm-hmm. adopt some kind of zigzag flight motion in order to, to detect the source of the smell. Right. Right. And yeah, that, that, that's what many seabirds, uh, the, the method they use to, to, to navigate. Uh, we see the same thing with vultures, not, not old world vultures, but new world vultures. So Turkey okay. vultures, which are found in North America, mm-hmm. uh, we know that turkey vultures have an excellent sense of smell. 
Their olfactory right. bulbs are enormous. Okay. And, you know, what do they use it for? Well, they're carrion feeders, so mm-hmm. they use it to smell rotting flesh. Right, right. Right. If they can smell, you know, the minute trail of something dead and decomposing, they can follow the smell trail back mm-hmm. to the source to find food. And so this is right. something that, you know, we are we are only starting to realize, huh, maybe birds can smell very well. It's just that it's maybe functioning in a way that we we, we, we you know, is not directly analogous to human smell. Right. Right. And right. and this idea that birds might use olfactory cues as a way of navigation as well is increasingly starting to become a very promising and exciting research area. Right. Okay. When, yeah. when you say that their sense of olfaction is not necessarily analogous to humans, what do you mean by that exactly? I mean, how, how are they processing these smell cues? How does it uh-huh. interact with their n- neurological, you know, foundation? Right. We, 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 know, we don't know this because bird brains are also very different from mammalian brains. Right. Uh, and I will not go into that right now because that's a 13-week yeah, lecture, yeah. <laughs> lecture series. But, you know, yeah. so, yeah, you know, we are starting to realize that, you know, the, the ways in which birds construct mental maps of the space around them, it n- incorporates visual cues but it, and you know electromagnetic cues, well, which is also <laughs> yeah. visual, and yeah. also olfactory cues, and that right. I think is really exciting, really okay. interesting. Okay. Celestial right. cues as well, I should say. So, yeah. Oh wow, yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, okay. yeah, dogs, basically, this yeah. is a long, long way, or, you know, of saying that animal perception that... is is really unusual. It's really interesting, yeah. and you know we. We know a little bit about how animals perceive the world, yep. but that synthesis is still very much lacking. Right. Yeah. I mean, the thing is, with the information that we have about this particular dog in Thailand, right, we have very little actual um, data about what it was that the dog picked up on. It mm-hmm. could be the smell of the vet, right? But it could mm-hmm. also be any series of smells or images, also mm-hmm. possible, that mm-hmm. the dog recognized while it was out. It could be like, yeah. I don't know the way home, but I recognize mm-hmm. this set of smells or this sequence of smells or this sequence of landmarks that I have seen before. And then right. you end up right. at the vet. I mean, and from it, a computational perspective, yeah. this is an algorithmic problem. <laughs> yes, it is. This is an algorithm optimization problem as well. Yep. How do I take in empirical data... Right. Oh, I, mm-hmm. I have an I have an empirical uh, I have an empirical data set right, which is the yeah. the vet smell. How yes. do I search the data space in the most efficient way, or in some Correct. way, as to finally a- arrive at this empirical data set? I mean, the the thing is, the dog arrived at the vet, right? But that's not the only possible solution. Mm-hmm. Um, right in in this in this hypothetical, you know, dog search algorithm. Right there, there are several possible endpoints. One is the vet. One is home. One could be like any other place that the dog has spent time in, which could be like a friend's house, right? Or yep. or whatever. I mean, or, or the dog park or God knows what. Um, it's yep. literally, it's, it's just that in this particular case, the dog recognized some sequence of some form of sense perception that led it back to a known location, which in this case happened to be the vet. But it wasn't yes. like the. But I think where 
and, okay, I mean, this is something that humans do all the time, right? Which is to ascribe, is, is to kind of anthropologize uh, animals, especially... Anthropomorphize, yeah. Anthropomorphize, thank you. Is to anthropomorphize animals, especially charismatic megafauna, right? Which is mm. to say, oh, the dog got lost. Didn't find, it didn't know its way home. So it went to the vet, which is true. But mm-hmm. I think it skips a lot of... It's, it's to assign a kind of intentionality be- between the dog getting lost and the dog ending up with the vet. But yep. actually, what's going on in between is the dog is like, this is an unfamiliar place. I must get to a familiar place. It is implementing a search algorithm. Yes. I don't think it's necessarily a random walk. Yes, <laughs> it's exactly. Not a Brownian motion algorithm. <laughs> <laughs> dog in Brownian motion would be... Uh, Oh, jeez. <laughs> would be quite entertaining. That's, a, that's an interesting name for a band. A dog in Brownian motion. <laughs> yeah, okay. Okay, so... <laughs> Hotel 81 and UV lights. Yes. So, um, so here's one of the things that... Um, I mean, you know, you accumulate... One accumulates a varied set of interests that one delves into at varying depths, as one does, uh, which is just my way of saying that I have been reading about Miles hacking, right? Okay, which is, okay. You know, which is the branch of like personal finance slash travel, right? Where you get Miles credit cards and then you use that to accumulate miles, airline miles, and then you go traveling, Okay, so yes. um, naturally, be- because Singaporeans are Singaporeans, and Singaporeans care about money, and Singaporeans care about travel, and Singaporeans have a very good home airline, right? Mm-hmm. There, is yep. a, there is a big community of um, miles hackers in Singapore, and one of the um, biggest kind of, you know, names, right, in Singaporean miles hacking is this guy. Uh, who runs the blog, The Mal Lion. Yes, I've heard of this before for some yes. reason. Okay. Yeah, and so his name is Aaron, Aaron Wong. Um, and you can imagine that in COVID, right? <laughs> nobody nobody is traveling. And just like, you know, in general, um, the world of Mal's hacking is a bit dead, right? And for, <laughs> yeah, for Aaron, for, for The Mal Lion, you know, this is his full-time job. He blogs and he gets commissions from, you know, people who sign up for, for, for credit cards and things like that. So he can't just not write, right, during this time. So what he's been doing, which is actually really clever, is now that hotels have opened up for staycations, right. he, is, he has been doing staycations at, you know, different hotels in Singapore and reviewing them, Right. So, yeah. And so, I mean, this is something that, you know, he kind of... It's it's part of his regular blogging job, which is, you know, mm-hmm. when he travels, he will write trip reports, he will review the airplanes, review the seats, review the airlines, review the hotels that he stays at. Because all, all this is useful information for anyone who, you know, has a pile of miles or points sitting around and needs to figure out a way to redeem them, right? So yeah. in this case, he's just kind of taking that and turning it on staycations. So okay. he's reviewed a bunch of, you know, 
uh, interesting staycation locations, including places that, you know, if you are Singaporean and you are looking for a place to do a staycation or you're, you, you might be curious about um, a particular place, but you know that you will never stay there. For example, he recently did a report on the Yotel Air at Changi Airport. Right, yeah. So it's a transit hotel at Changi that, um, that I, I mean, I've been curious about it because it's kind of a capsule hotel or close yes. to it. It's very small. Um, but, you know, you wouldn't necessarily shell out money for yourself to experience it right, <laughs> because yep. it's utterly pointless to, to do that. Yeah. So <laughs> anyway, um, in his trip report, right, he, um, or in his series of staycation trip reports, staycation reports, I mean, there was no trip. He's, um, one of the hotels he's gone to is Hotel 81 <laughs> because he noticed that it was an approved list of hotels for staycations. Okay. And, um, you know, he has a good sense of humor. He could not <laughs> pass that up. So, um, and also in, because, you know, in COVID related news, right? He bought a UV light to, yeah, which we, we, won't, we won't get into the utility of UV lights for the purposes of COVID, right? But I think this is probably more of a gimmick than anything. So, you know, when he does his staycation reports, he will, you know, turn off all the lights and then go around the hotel with a UV light and see whether, the you know, whether it's clean. You know, whether housekeeping has come in and actually clean up the place. No. Okay, sorry to di digress yes. for a while, but this is something that has pissed me off a lot because this is a yep. fundamental misunderstanding of... Yep the effect of UV light, right? Yes. I mean, People, I agree with you. <laughs> programs like CSI have yep. popularized this notion that UV light can be used for detecting all manner of irregularities, shall we say, yes. related to hygiene. But that's not how it works. In order, uh, Okay, yep. primarily UV light is meant for detecting sperm. Yes. Right, semen stains, effectively. Yes. And you can't just wave a UV torch around and yep. have, you know, bits of, 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 you know, stain light up. You need to yep. use a chemical that binds to semen stains in order to make it fluoresce under UV light. And that chemical is called luminol. Right, okay. So, yeah, you know, it's like it, you, you can buy as many UV torches as you want, you know. All you're doing it's, is increasing yeah. your exposure to skin cancer. <laughs> if you're using a high power, yeah. too high, the, the wrong yeah. wavelength, obviously, yeah. Yeah, sorry. well, I mean, but, in... Sorry. in 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 other you know other purposes for UV lights, um, stagehands actually have a very legitimate use for UV lights. Interestingly enough, right, um, which is that in uh, in some theaters, right, because backstage, or mm -hmm. I mean not necessarily backstage, but stagehands often have to work in the dark, right? Yep. Yeah. So sometimes um, there will be markers that are marked with. Uh, with glow in the dark tape. Yep. Yep. And that's what stage hands use them for. Yep. You you shine the torch around and then if it will charge the glow in the dark tape or if it's if there's glow in the dark tape it will fluoresce. But yeah. Yep. Anyway. Legitimate uses for UV lights. Okay, anyway. But never mind about that, right? So let's just treat this as what it is, which is a gimmick. A man brought okay. a UV light into Hotel eighty one. So yep. for context, right? Hotel eighty one is a budget hotel that charges by the hour. Uh, and you know how that goes. Okay. So, 
he noticed that Hotel 81 was on the staycation list and so he couldn't resist you know booking a staycation yeah and he walks through the he there is this excellent um very funny review which I'll post in the show notes <laughs> and uh his wife is a dentist so he's like hey wanna go on a staycation to Hotel D1 and his wife is like no if I get any diseases I cannot practice um <laughs> so he goes alone to Hotel 81, which you must imagine must be excellent. Um, yeah, and then he's making a booking, all right? And the receptionist is like, okay, how many people will be will be coming? Right, how many people will be, you know, visiting the hotel? And he's like, just me. And the receptionist is like, okay, but just to let you know, if you bring in any extra people, there's an extra charge for that. <laughs> 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 okay, so he not goes her in. First rodeo. Fair yeah, enough. very, very much not. Yeah, so he goes, he checks in, and then he, you know, does a standard kind of review of the room. He's like, "Hey, this is, you know, these are the beds, these are the tables, this is what stuff looks like," and then, um, he, of course, turns on the UV light, um, and uh, let's just say. It is um, the UV equivalent of colorful. Okay. Yep. Yep. Um, okay. Yeah. And also, the first room that he was given, he went into the bathroom and there was a cockroach. <laughs> now, that's <laughs> so, a different story. Yeah. <laughs> yes. So he asked for a second room. He asked for a different room and he, he got a different room. And, um, yeah, so, I mean, he just, you know, did the review. He couldn't sleep. <laughs> he ended up going home to sleep. And his wife is like, his wife is like, Told you. you're not, you're not coming to bed with clothes that Do have been in Hotel one Thoroughly disinfected. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yep. So oh, that, that was, yeah, so that was basically his review. He went back to the hotel in the morning. He discovered that there is no hotel breakfast. Um, huh, huh. Yeah, they they advertise the hotel breakfast, but what it is 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 kind of some kind of coupon or whatever to eat at the coffee shop next door. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's actually not not a bad idea, you know. As opposed to getting two slices of stale bread and yeah. jam that's from a little carton. Yeah, I mean it's it's not uncommon for for restaurants that don't have in house dining to just mm-hmm. have an arrangement with a nearby restaurant, and they're like, hey. Take yeah, this yeah, fair enough. voucher and I mean, just go down there. Well, yeah. I mean, so the question is, is what was he detecting with that UV torch, right? I you know, have the, no idea. Since he obviously wasn't, you know, bringing with him a bottle of luminol to spray. Nope. What was he hoping that this UV torch would illuminate? So, I mean, this is the thing that, that you know, uh, going back to my minor rant just now, it's yep. that, okay, you know, this is something that people think illuminate something in a very literal sense. Yes. What exactly, I mean, you know, what it tells me is that some of the things in there are used pigments that fluoresce under UV light. That's it. This is the only conclusion that you can, that you can reach, right? Like if you find something fluorescing, you don't know what it is. The only thing you know is that it is something that happens to fluoresce under UV light. 
Either that or he was surrounded by scorpions, uh, which, fun fun segue, scorpions Mm -hmm. glow under UV light. I think most scorpions do, and we don't really know why. I'm I'm pretty sure having found the cockroach, if there were scorpions, he would have noticed as well. (laughs) I mean, well, to be fair. Yeah. Uh, let's not make assumptions uh, uh, too, too hastily. Um, <laughs> yeah. But no, this is something that we do, you know, when we go out in the field. Uh, and, right. You know, I, I, I lived over the last year in, in the desert, basically. And so when we go out to the desert at night, we bring a UV torch because there's right. scorpions everywhere and they're really cool to look at. Um, and yeah, so, I mean, this is a, a minor segue. S- scientists are still trying to figure out why scorpions glow under UV light. Uh, okay. it's it's really not not immediately apparent why. The, one of the hypotheses is that you know maybe there's a lot of UV light bouncing around at night, and it's a way for them to see each other. I I, I honestly don't know. That's... But yeah, it's super cool. Um, the next time you encounter a scorpion, have a UV torch handy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, useful I... advice. Yeah, I don't. I, I mean, I have like one of those keychain lights um it's somewhere i have a keychain light i have a uv keychain light U- keychain uv light somewhere but mm-hmm. i have not actually had any use for it other than the time that um field notes <laughs> the, the brand <laughs> they they actually had a special edition um called snowblind i believe oh. that um yeah so it changes color under uv light right okay yep. okay but well, that's so about now, it. now you have a use for that torch right detecting yes. Scorpions, scorpions should they end up for some reason in your house which you know has happened to me before uh, when i was working in sumatra right uh, <laughs> you know yeah. i i there was a yelp coming from the next room went in there was a about a uh a 5 to 10 cm long scorpion Oof. on the floor so we used a broom to sweep it out of the house and that was the end of it okay yeah because that scorpion. was my next Sorry. question like what do you do with when you see, when you <laughs> find a scorpion it's. I mean, scorpions are mostly harmless. Just don't touch okay. the damn thing. You know, just right. shepherd it along its way. Leave it alone uh-huh. if you can. Um, right. If you get stung, it's mostly because you know it's maybe hiding in a hole, and then you weren't, you didn't know it was there, and you put your finger inside, and bam, you get um, hit. Uh, that happened to a colleague of mine because we were doing field work. You know, we set up a camp table, right, affordable uh-huh. table, which has you know holes here and there, right, because yep, yep. it's meant to be light. And when yep. we were packing up, we didn't know where a scorpion had gone inside, and then oh my god, okay, and went in. But you know, <laughs> not life threatening, just uh, yep. a bit of pain, a bit of swelling, and went down within right. twenty minutes. But yeah. <laughs> okay scorpion yeah. sorry there's a weird ass segue from uv light in a in a I hotel mean, room not, but it's not that weird but i mean it, it seems perfectly natural to me to go from like uv lights <laughs> to scorpions so um, so yeah i mean yeah. you know I, I i am interested you know in in what exactly this mao lion guy was detecting with it i mean for all we know there might be things that fluoresce in the uv light that you know Detect or well, that highlight something undesirable. I don't know enough about the, the neither, uses so. of UV light for for hygiene, but uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Me neither. I think honestly, the if, I mean, if you if you want to be like rigorous about it, right? And let's assume let's assume that he knows perfectly well that none of this is conclusive. I think the most logical thing to conclude is that. He is a businessman. He knows that, you know, the gimmick of the gimmick of shining a UV light in Hotel 81 
is going to get him new readers, which I'm sure it has. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I've been you, for example. Just saying. <laughs> uh, no, I mean I've been I've been reading I've been reading okay. Kamala and like very religiously right. since since. Okay, uh, one months, correction: Mary much. started isn't at Stanford; she's at Princeton. Right. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I keep confusing the yeah. two for some reason. I quit my job. <clears throat> Which is also why we haven't been recording for the last few weeks. Mm-hmm. Not that anybody's noticed. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah. So I quit my job. I'm doing a boot camp um, from... So the school is a... F- okay, let me just get this out of the way. The name of the school where I'm doing a boot camp, it's a web development coding boot camp, basically, uh, is Lavagon. So they are French. And... <laughs> Um, it is a, it is interesting. So it's like, basically the, 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 this whole section, right? Like if I was properly editing it in a podcast, I would cut this whole section and redo it. So let me just <laughs> redo it on the fly. So yes, I quit my job. Huh. I've been doing a, I've been doing a web development bootcamp with um, a school called Le Vagon, And they offer a nine week course right that gets you from ostensibly from zero to mm-hmm. being able to um being able to deploy a web application in nine weeks um yeah so i just finished the first week and i'm not starting from zero it would be a lot harder if i were <laughs> but <laughs> I, uh yeah no i'm yeah so I mean, it's pretty interesting, and I I think because we've talked a lot about CS fifty in the past, right? So yes, we have. Um, yeah. This is the the spirit of it is actually very similar. I kind of wonder how a lot of these effectively intro to computer science classes are being run at the moment, um, because I've done CS fifty, I've done you know I'm doing Lavagon right now, and actually in terms of structure, they are very similar. Which yep. is yeah, which is which is interesting because Levagon actually started um, with the explicit kind of um, basically they they position themselves as as being different from being the kind of education that you would get in a university setting, right? Yep. Right, because you know the the three co-founders. Um, I think it's three yeah i'm not sure i'm not sure what the breakdown is exactly but two of them at least two of them are engineers who oh, you know okay. went to went to engineering school in france and everything and mm-hmm. um the kind of idea behind starting it was that you know when you're in school you sit through lectures and you learn arcane things that don't necessarily have a lot of application to the real world there's a lot of the same right. comments that are made about a lot of you know programs in uh, in a university setting that they have no real yeah. world relevance right Ooh, so uh, fair enough okay yeah. yeah and so the idea behind Levagon is that here's um you know a place where you learn the, a skill that is up to date that mm-hmm. is um practical and hands-on right yeah. and doesn't teach you stuff that has no practical application which of course I think we we both have you know similar feelings about the value of a university education and yes. how that relates to vocation, which is I think 
both of us don't necessarily feel that education in the stricter sense has to directly correlate with with vocational skills. Right, right. And we right. did mention a lot about this when we talked about CS50 in terms of how yep. the conceptual underpinning Correct. serves as a very important way, you know, of of you know that, that of making practical application meaningful yes. as well. Correct. So yeah. So but the the funny thing is when I compare, you know, CS50 with what we've been doing so far at Lavagon, they're actually very similar. Um, right. Very, very similar. Mm-hmm. In the sense that you have a lecture, the lecture is, in, in, in this particular case, the lecture is one and a half hours, which is very mm-hmm. similar to CS50, which is one hour, 45 minutes, right? You do the lecture and then you have, Lavagon calls them challenges, they're problem sets. Hmm. Oh, okay. <laughs> right? They're basically problem sets. And then uh, huh. one big difference, one big Marketing. difference is that, Um, One difference is that with CS50, um, all the tools are in-house. So I mentioned before that CS50 has basically an online IDE, Integrated Development Environment. So it's an Mm -hmm. editor, it's a debugger, it's a terminal. um, And you use it to write your code, to run your code. Uh, you can use it to debug as well. And then they have a whole suite of tools, right? They have Check50, which is basically it checks whether your program passes the spec. Yeah. Right? Whether it passes the specifications that have been set by the problem set. Mm-hmm. So basically, I feed in an input. Does it give me the correct output? Um, yeah. Then there is Style50, which points out places where your code does not conform to accepted coding conventions, right? You have not indented properly, you have not commented your code properly, things like that. Then there is help 50, which is, um, you know, you're encountering some kind of error message. You don't know what it is. Help 50 helps you to translate that, basically. Then there is submit 50, which is your code passes, check 50. Mm -hmm. You can submit the assignment for grading. Yeah. 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 And the basically Levagon has a very similar set of tools. The main difference is that where where CS50 uses their own in-house tools, Levagon uses mostly tools that already exist. So obviously if you're going to be a working developer, you have to know how to use Git. Yes. Right? Yeah. For source control. Yeah. So um and because Levagon uses Ruby as the teaching language for backend, for backend development, mm-hmm. um, Ruby actually has its own set of, you know, testing and linting tools, right? So RSpec is how you specify, basically it's, it's, it's kind of says it in the name, RSpec, Ruby specifications, right? So you, yeah. you, you create yes. a file that says, when I give this input, I want this output. Yes. Right? And then um, when you run RSpec, it basically tells you whether your test, whether your code passes the test or not. Yeah. Yeah. Then you have Rubocop, which is possibly my favorite name. <laughs> Rubocop. I love this. Rubocop <laughs> is, is the Ruby linter, right? It tells you whether your code adheres to Ruby style conventions. It's actually a lot stricter than I would have expected. 
Um, so there are the standard ones, right? Indentation, yeah. um, like preferred conventions. Like for example, Ruby is not a fan of um, finding out whether your code, well, whether your code, whether your whether an expression is is um, true or false by. Okay, I I shouldn't put it this way. So for example, right, if you are a programmer in most other languages, you find out whether an integer is odd or even by mm-hmm. using modulo two. Right, if modulo okay. two equals to zero, mm-hmm. your expression is your integer is even. Right. Right. Yes. Okay. Ruby does not like this, <laughs> or rather, Rubocop does not like this. Rubocop. Rubocop will tell you when Rubocop sees such an expression, it will tell you Ruby has a function called dot even question mark. <laughs> so, um, okay. what you would do is you just say, if integer dot even question mark, right? And then this expression will return true or false. It does exactly the same thing as modulo 2 equals equals 0. But Rubocop will be like, don't do that. It's not Rubyist. I just Use found the Rubocop even. GitHub page. And uh-huh. they have a very nice looking logo. Uh, okay, wow. I have to see this. <laughs> It says, role models are important. A quote from (laughs) Officer Alex J. Murphy slash Robocop. (laughs) Oh my god, okay. (laughs) Right, oh, I I see what you're saying, yes. Uh, Wow. So, And very active development, good god. Yeah, of course, it is very active. So, I mean, those are the small things. It's kind of, Mm -hmm. you know, getting you to use code that looks more Rubyist, but then... Yeah, they actually have two other um, checks. One is for length of method, function, method, whatever, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I still have a C brain. I still think of them as functions and I mentally, I correct myself all the time. And I'm like, method, method, method. Um, so there is a, a check for how long, how many lines of code exists in a method. Mm-hmm. More than 10 lines it's going to tell you method is too long. Right. So okay. anything yeah. that's more than 10 lines, you're supposed to factor out whatever you can. Well, refactor your code, but basically it's saying, like, are you sure that this is one method? Should it be <laughs> two methods? I mean, that's, right. that's, that's, you know, that's a level of pedantry that I wasn't yes. expecting from... <laughs> from a programming yes. language, but okay, okay, good on them, I guess. Okay, look, so I mean, I was doing one of the challenges. It's an optional challenge because because um, I'm one of those that will do the optional challenges. Uh, so it was an optional challenge, and it was to convert um, a string into Morse code. Now, I mean, what are you going to do with this, right? You're going to create um, a hash, right? Mm-hmm. Or, yeah. you know, a cipher, the, effectively. Effectively, yeah, you, you create yeah. some kind of hash that mm-hmm. has, here is, you know, the key is the letter, the output mm-hmm. or the value is the Morse code, right? Yeah. And, well, how many how many letters are there in the alphabet? 26. Mm-hmm. So I did the code and I I ran it through um, rake or rspec. I mean, not exactly the same thing, but they do the same thing, right? And then Rubocop is like, Method has too many lines. <laughs> and I'm like, how the hell? I mean, there are 26 letters in the alphabet. Um, yeah. So 
Lavagon actually allows you to download the solution. So I downloaded the solution. I was like, how do you do this in less than 10 lines? Well, the answer is, and I mean, in a sense, this is not wrong. The answer is, take out the Morse code, take out the hash that contains the Morse code, put it in a separate file, and then That's include what was, it. Yeah. That's what I was guessing. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Okay. Yeah. And then you're like, okay, I mean, I get it. But, but also, oh my God, this is such a pain. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, right. you know, this is the, this is the, the, this is, to be fair, this is not a Ruby only. I mean, Ruby being especially pedantic about this is one thing, but, yep. you know, this is always the, w w when you're doing coding, it's, do, should I hard code everything? Right, right. Or, or should I put, every, you know, make it a slightly more dynamic system where I, you know, I, I think edit files and, yeah. Here's, here's the thing, right? So, I mean, and okay, this is also an argument in a sense to be made for one difference between CS50 and, and Lovagon because Lovagon is, is very clear that the outcome that they want is that after nine weeks, you are hireable. Yeah, okay. Right? Whereas CS50 has a different goal. They have no delusions that after completing one single CS course, you're going to be a software developer or you're going to be a comp science major or whatever. It's right. literally... This is a university course. If you are not a major, you may never touch this again. Which I think is why <laughs> they use their own suite of tools, right? So that there isn't like, you know, you, you don't have a situation where after the first class, everybody just sits in a section installing like a linter and an IDE and, a, and you know, like setting up their editor and like making sure that they have Ruby or Python or a C compiler mm -hmm. and... You know, they don't need that. They just put everything on their own server. You ex you log in, you do the code on their server. Yeah. You run it on their server. You yeah. never the the for the entire duration of CS50, you never use Git. Mm, right. Yeah. Oh, okay. Not yeah. true. Not true. Submit fifty is Git. I mean, not it is not Git. It, it uses <laughs> Git. When you submit okay. something to CS50, you are committing code to your GitHub account. But yes. it's abstracted away for you as a student. Okay. Right? So the idea is, I think the idea is that, okay, since we don't know what your own goals are, right, mm -hmm. with taking CS50, mm -hmm. uh, we're not going to assume that you want all these things that might just be distractions. Like if all you want to do is learn to look at code and write code, right, and understand it on a conceptual level, Right, yeah. you don't really need to use Git. Okay, okay. Right. right. Yeah, fair enough. So, fair enough. Yeah. I, I mean, so I'll I be fair. As a bioinformatician or someone who pretends to be a bioinformatician, I've never used Git before. I mean, I know GitHub, <laughs> but I don't. I don't have a Git page. I really should, but that's uh, right. beside the point. Right. So I think they just kind of abstract all of that away, and then mm. if you take the second, if you, like for example, um, there is another class that for, that requires CS50, which is web programming mm. with Python and JavaScript, lesson one, how to use Git. Right? <laughs> that assumption, right. that comes from the assumption that if you're in that class, you yep. have some aspiration to be a working developer. Right, right? yes. And yes. so I think there is that element of it. And so in CS50, if you hard code your hash into, into your code, right, mm -hmm. style 50 is not going to be like your method is too long. Yeah. Or you shouldn't be yeah. hard coding stuff or whatever because mm -hmm. the purpose of you doing that assignment 
is understanding how the code works. Yes, fair right? enough. Yeah. Whereas, yep. Yep. again, if you are in a boot camp and the goal is to get you, you know, potentially hireable as a junior developer at the end, mm -hmm. then obviously you need to know how things are expected to be in development where you're never working on something purely in isolation. It's not like, okay, you, we're going to write this function that spits out Morse code and that's all <laughs> that it's going to do because it has to connect to other functions that yes. exist inside the software. And that's so right. whatever that can be abstracted out should be abstracted, and which is, again, yep. why Ruby will yell at, RuboCop will yell at you for... <laughs> Yes. For code being more than ten lines long, yeah. You know, I think they should they should add a module that you know converts the 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 the, the, the sort of text yelling into actual yelling over your speaker. <laughs> that should make coding Speech a much more interactive experience. Uh, text to speech, rather. Yeah, yeah the text to speech. Yeah, you know, it, it, it brings new new uh, new new meaning to interactive coding. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, so. Anyway. Uh, we have been talking for, oh God, one and a half hours. One and a half and hours. And I think should, this is a good place to... Uh, should probably stop here, yeah. We have, we have talked about a good variety of topics from yes. perception to, well, in a sense, perception of um, credit card privileges as well, <laughs> uh, all the way down to perception <gasps> of coding. So this is a perception-themed episode. Very we nice. Can, we can, I think we can give it a title. <laughs> that has, yeah, you know, or wh whatever. Anyway, uh, I guess the title will be perception related. Yeah. So <laughs> anyway, we'll round this up. The show notes for this episode can be found at monkeymind.xyz slash 009. And uh, we will see you next week, whenever. I guess, or whenever it is. Yeah. Hopefully. Hopefully. <laughs> All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.